This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Victoria Lupascu, and this is East, uh, East Asian Studies channel from New Books Network. Today, we're here with Dr. Mayfair Young, and um, I want to welcome her to, to our channel and to thank her for agreeing to talk to us about her new book, Reenchanting Modernity, Ritual Economy and Society in Wenzhou, China, published by Duke University Press in 2020. Welcome, Dr. Young. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. Um, so we'll start the, the interview by asking you uh, more about uh, how you came to this project. You know, what got you interested in uh, and maintained your interest in China as an academic subject in the first place, since you have been having a really amazing career and have been publishing prolifically since the 1990s. So I'm an Asian American uh, born in Taiwan, first generation immigrant to the U.S. And I've been fascinated by mainland China since I was an undergraduate student at UC Berkeley a uh, long time ago. So I also wanted to understand my parents' heritage. So back then, when uh, I got really interested in China as an undergraduate, uh, China was still pretty much a communist closed society, which made it all the more mysterious and alluring. So at that time, I double majored in Chinese uh, language. And uh, at that time, it was actually called Oriental uh, Languages Department. Yep. And I also majored in cultural anthropology. While in um, the East Asian Department, um, I was not interested in the attitude that all the greatness of China was in the past. I was uh, very much uh, fascinated by what could be going on in China uh, today. So I wanted, and yet uh, there was very little literature on exactly what China was like. Uh, we got a lot of uh, propaganda literature coming out of China, but not very many people going there. So I became really curious at that time. That is really fascinating. And I have to say, uh, and I apologize to the listeners, but if I said this in any other occasions, but um, my own undergraduate um, education is in Oriental languages because the Oriental languages department still exists um, in many places in Eastern Europe. Um, so I think uh, we, we can, you know, talk about different legacies, right, that have have maintained. Um, so, uh, you know, that aside, just as a personal anecdote a little bit, um, you know, I, I noticed that you start the book by saying that you did not set out to study religious cultures, uh, but you were confronted with, with their sa uh, salience in the field. So could you please tell us more about this, this fact that you encountered? Yeah, you know, my first book was about uh, gift giving and personal connections. And um, in the process of doing that research, I um, came to understand, you know, doing fieldwork and living in uh, Beijing uh, for two years, uh, over two years for that, um, I came to understand that during the Maoist era, 
uh, China had become a highly centralized and bureaucratic uh, state-dominated society. Uh, and I kept on bumping into nails, trying to get permission to do fieldwork in uh, a factory in Beijing. And when you have to deal with the bureaucracy, uh, they always say no. So, um, so basically, you know, I, I thought, uh, and then I came to um, really appreciate this notion of civil society. And it's very interesting, of course, uh, civil society comes out of the West European Enlightenment era and all those major philosophers. The discourse was very big in the Enlightenment. Um, you know, they were witnessing the absolutist state in um, Europe at that time. And then it went into a lull, uh, and nobody in uh, what in the West was really interested in civil society. Um, but what uh, brought about the revival were Eastern European intellectuals in the 1970s and 80s who uh, started talking about civil society again. So in that context, uh, and given my um, having lived in China, I really appreciated this new notion of civil society. Um, and um, so I wanted to go to a very rural part of China in search of the sprouts of civil society in peasant culture, because up until uh, the 90s, uh, my work had been uh, in Beijing in uh, um, urban part. So I was introduced uh, by a Chinese friend to Wenzhou, and this area really reminded me of my childhood in Taiwan, uh, where it was very bustling. It's a rapidly developing rural to urban transition. Uh, people are very uh, busy and moving around via pedicabs and motorcycles, uh, which was the case in uh, Wenzhou in the 90s. Um, so at first, I explored uh, secular non-governmental organizations in my project to look for civil society uh, in Wenzhou. And I uh, interviewed a private school, entrepreneurs association. I interviewed people at the local writers federation, a stamp collecting society, and so forth. But I found that in terms of how they were established, their funding source, their organizational ethos, and their activities. Um, they all seemed very uh, state-oriented and beholden. So they often adopted some sort of state language. Um, and I discovered that the more independent associations, uh, such as uh, uh, you know, the uh, deity temples, Taoist and Buddhist temples, and um, lineage, uh, ancestor halls, and even Christian churches, all these uh, that were truly uh, initiated and funded by grassroots forces, uh, these all had a ritual and religious dimension. And so I realized uh, while doing fieldwork that I had to focus on these. Um, despite the fact that local authorities uh, discouraged my efforts and I had to retool my intellectual approach because I hadn't uh, really received training in the study of religion. So I had to uh, read up on the anthropology of religion. 
So I was very impressed with how the local people were so patient and persistent and so highly motivated and very impressively organized in their struggles with officialdom uh, to retrieve and restore old temple sites and uh, petition for permits to use land and build new ritual sites. And so basically, I found that religion and ritual were very salient uh, in the field. And even though I had not planned to uh, deal with religion, uh, I had to confront it. Absolutely. And it seems that, um, you know, it's one of the the very, very interesting ways in which the field and what you find in the field um, almost pushes you to 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 retool, to, you know, try to get access and to understand what is happening um, that's happening there. And I think we, we definitely see this in, in the book itself, which is comprised of 10, 10 chapters divided into three parts. Uh, and of course, with the addition of the conclusion chapter. Um, and in the introduction part, um, you, you lay out the importance of rituals and the existence, as well as the long history of a ritual economy in Wenzhou, uh, which is in Zhejiang province, China. And I was wondering whether you could tell our listeners more about how these key phrases, um, so rituals, um, you know, uh, ritual economy and, and so on, um, how do they um, function in your work and how they structure the book itself? Okay. Um, so, um, well, uh, because I'm going to discuss ritual economy later, so I will put the focus on two keywords here. Um, one, the book title is a Reenchanting Modernity. And so it invokes uh, Max Weber, uh, the famous uh, uh, sociologist, who also, you know, wrote a few books on Chinese religions. Um, he regretted how modernity was a process of disenchantment, in his words, and which was about secularization uh, that ushered in the age of utilitarianism, cold-blooded bureaucratism, and rationalization, which is another one of his terms. Um, and these uh, processes often tended to suspend the consideration of ethics. So... Um, and so when I look at uh, China, uh, under pressure and threat from the imperialist West that had made it into a semi-colony, a 20th century China uh, in this uh, sort of crisis uh, trauma period uh, embraced the modern Western notion that one had to destroy one's traditional culture and religions in order to modernize and catch up with the West. So China also, of course, um, with the communist revolution, uh, armed itself with the linear evolutionary teleology of a crude sort of Marxism, uh, which propelled it to turn um, against its own so-called backward feudal superstitions uh, in order to join the industrialized world. So... Uh, China wanted to modernize and industrialize without capitalism. So it expanded its ancient centralized state into a much more penetrating and all-controlling state than ever before, uh, never before in its history. Um, 
so it's against this uh, historical background of severe state secularization that I'm uh, examining the significance of this uh, re-enchantment going on in Wendell today with the religious revival. And uh, the other term that I'd like to address that I use in um, chapter one in my introduction is uh, uh, post-secularism, um, which is a term made more popular by Jürgen Habermas. Uh, so post-secularism, it's kind of like the term postmodern, in that it's a uh, critique of the excesses of uh, secularism, just as postmodern is a critique of the excesses of the notion of uh, modern, modernization, modernity. Um, so in China, what uh, like uh, uh, secularism has had um, a kind of demonization of religion at times. So just like modernity, now that we have seen all the new problems that secularism entails, we have entered into a post-period where we start to question our past infatuation with secularism or uh, modernity, and we re-examine religiosity from a new angle. So in some circles, there is uh, a kind of thinking that... Um, much as uh, modernist discourses would like to, we can not get rid of religiosity. It's a, a deeply entrenched thing that if you try to kill it and shove it away, it will come back in new unexpected forms. So definitely um, one fruitful avenue of exploring uh, the fact that uh, you cannot get rid of religion um, is in thinking about nationalism. Uh, nationalism it can be seen in some ways as a new um, kind of a, a, a new way that religiosity has retreated to. Okay, and and uh, I think many of us are aware of some of the excesses and destructiveness of ultranationalism of all different kinds. So for me, um, in this re-examination of secularization and religiosity, there's a historical irony in the fact that China so embraced the Western opposition between religion and science and between religion and economy. So uh, one, first of all, we need to consider that this Western opposition between religion and science and between religion and economy, which were, has been globalized, this opposition, uh, really is, uh, uh, doesn't do justice to the particularity of religion in China. Because, of course, the Western opposition is based on opposing Christianity against science and Christianity against economy. But other places, this opposition really doesn't uh, work very well. Because unlike Christianity, Chinese religions, popular religion, Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism, and so forth, um, were plural traditions. They coexisted, and they were not posited as a singular truth. 
um, because there were many religious traditions and they were often blended in syncretic ways in um, China, in the history of China. Indeed, both in the past uh, in China and also today, we see that many of these religious traditions are not opposed to science, but can be compatible, um, especially Taoism and Buddhism and Confucianism. Furthermore, uh, China underwent a commercial revolution about a thousand years ago during the Song Dynasty in the 11th century, at a time when Europe was still in the Dark Ages. In the Song Dynasty, religion was no obstacle to economic development, um, which, uh, you know, during that time, there was a real uh, commercial flowering. Um, and... Um, but religion at that time was a crucial element and a driving force, as it is today, I believe, in Wenzhou. So those are the two terms I wanted to uh, elaborate on. And then I'll talk about ritual economy. Absolutely, sure. And, um, you know, I, I definitely have, have questions that, um, that point to, to that later on. Um, I think furthermore, I would um, just want to ask a little bit more about the introduction, although you already touched um, on, on, on some of the point that I want to make. And I'm sorry if it's a bit repetitive. And, you know, please feel free to, to um, you know, um, ask me to move further if, if that's the case. Um, <laughs> but I was, uh, I was very interested in this, uh, this quote where you say that Wenzhou religiosity was an active engagement with modernity, a willed reenchantment, as well as that the revival of local religious identities can moderate the intense emotional attachments to the centralizing nation state. End of quote. So the notions of modernity, nation state, and local religious identities um, were key in my perspective here. And um, you already you already touched on the relationship between nation state, nationalism, modernity, and and religion, but here the, the term local and local religious identities seem to, to be key. And, um, you know, uh, specifically in the climate in, in Wenzhou. Um, so I don't know if, if there was anything that you wanted to, to add here to, you know, further expand on. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I talk about... Uh, Reenchantment um, as not just a blind continuity with the past, but as a willed reenchantment, because uh, these people living in Wenzhou that uh, I studied and talked with, um, they all went through uh, a very severe state secularization during the Maoist era, and also before that during the Republican era of the uh, government of. Uh, uh, Sun Yat-sen and Chiang Kai-shek. And um, so from the beginning of the uh, 20th century, you had this impulse towards condemning uh, traditional religiosity. So these people have uh, gone through all that. Um, during the Maoist period, there was virtually no public religious activities allowed, and they were taught about the evils of superstition. But in the relaxation, political relaxation during the post-Mao period, they still wanted to go back to these um, uh, religious activities. 
And it suggests that they see something that the dominant discourse fails to recognize. Okay. So I see their reenchantment activities as efforts by the local people to rebalance the state distortion of Chinese modernity, to reintroduce religious ethics, to rebuild the lost horizontal community ties that had been replaced with uh, by top-down vertical bureaucratic commands. Um, and uh, I see it as an effort to strengthen local autonomy, self-governance, and social initiatives uh, at the grassroots, from the grassroots uh, for the public good. Um, so, uh, and the way that I see uh, their re-enchantment as uh, strengthening local self-governance and um, building a religious civil society is that like Catholic saints, most Chinese gods were once um, a virtuous, uh, virtuous human beings who sacrificed for or benefited others or who did, uh, had an invention of uh, something innovative that benefited future generations. So they, these Chinese gods have hagiographies in written, in written records, and they're usually treated as terri territorial gods um, who may or may not have been born in the local area, uh, but whose worship builds up local identity, community solidarity, and local memory. So in the context of modern Chinese history, where you have a totalizing nationalism and a centralized state, um, where these forces have become overwhelming, I'm suggesting that re-enchantment in Wenzhou helps to redress the imbalance of the 20th century by strengthening local self-governance and community bonds uh, in the context of the overwhelming nation-state buildup. So in contrast to nation-state, uh, this kind of religiosity emphasizes localities, which uh, can also easily become transnational localities because uh, they cross national boundaries. Uh, Wenzhou people are very entrepreneurial. They fan across not only China, uh, but also into Asia and even into Africa. Um, and they also reach upward beyond the nation state to the afterlife and the realm of the gods, immortals, and Buddhas above. So I'm seeing uh, them as building up a local identity, and which can be transnational. And they're also going beyond the nation state to uh, basically transcendent uh, authorities. Uh, beyond uh, temporal authorities. And uh, just to testify to, to what you said, um, for my time that I spent in Pennsylvania, um, one of the, the local restaurants was actually won owned by someone from Wenzhou and they were saying they have a yeah they have a local uh, you know a little temple in their house and you know they have um, uh, gatherings and you know uh, perform these 
um, probably altered uh, type of rituals. Probably they're a little different than what they would be in China. But you know, just to to testify to what you're saying, that it's it's it really goes beyond um, Wenzhou as it is in China, right? Yeah. And some Chinese restaurants and even Vietnamese restaurants and and so forth, uh, they have little altars in the restaurant, right, to uh, the earth god or um, to the god of uh, wealth. And, uh, yeah, they turn their restaurants into a little temple. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, as you're you're mentioning all of these things, I really cannot uh, stop but think about methodology, um, this is so fertile ground to, to research. And, you know, I was wondering about your preferred methods of approaching the topic and just managing the trips to China every year. Uh, how did that look for you? Okay. Yeah, as a, I'm trained as a cultural anthropologist, a PhD in anthropology at UC Berkeley. So the preferred methodology is long-term immersive fieldwork where you're living with the people uh, for you know, about a year and uh, sharing their daily lives. However, I was not able to do this uh, because I could never get long-term visas. And so my longest stay was uh, uh, over two months. And I also had teaching and administrative duties back uh, at uh, UC Santa Barbara. Sure. So this is why the book perhaps took so long. I kept feeling I had to go back for more field work to make sure I got everything right, especially since the local language language is so difficult to understand. And I often had to find um, Mandarin speakers. Um, and uh, part of the reason why this area, uh, and I'm, I'm working in rural and small town areas, uh, the, what, the reason why this area has uh, is so strong in uh, religion, traditional religion and ritual, uh, and uh, various reinventions of them, uh, is that uh, the educational level is low. This area was very poor uh, during the Maoist era uh, because their entrepreneurial culture just um, wasn't acceptable in the Maoist era of rural collectivization. Um, so the people who could speak Mandarin um, were men, who had joined the army and learned Mandarin traveling around China. Uh, Most of the women um, above uh, 30 um, could not speak any Mandarin. So it was a struggle. But, you know, over the years, of course, uh, the place became better educated. I would, uh, so I made uh, 13 trips over a 26-year period, which is a very long time. Um, each trip was anywhere from um, two weeks to over two months and totaling for 42 weeks, and, which is respectable. Um, and uh, spread over such a long uh, period, I was really able to see the historical changes uh, and unfolding of uh, all these uh, religious sites. I would live in people's homes or in small local hotels uh, and also in a couple of Buddhist monasteries in the uh, women's uh, dormitory part. Um, And I would generally rely on friends and contacts to introduce me to people to interview 
or I would also wander around to ritual sites and seek out people who were willing to talk with me. Um, so, you know, uh, it's a kind of snowball uh, effect of uh, relying on people I already knew uh, or contacts I initiated to introduce me to more people. And this hard work and the different perspectives really stand out from the amount of details that the book contains. And um, it does appear to me that part one, not only chapter one, but, uh, you know, chapter two and three, um, two, but, you know, uh, the whole book, of course, uh, does a lot of this heavy lifting in familiarizing the reader with Wenzhou and uh, the religious and ritual economy there. Um, so I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit more about the, the work uh, that part one does uh, for the readers. Okay, yeah. Um, so we've talked a, a fair amount about uh, chapter one, which is the introduction, yeah. uh, and it lays out uh, the sort of the, the theoretical um, issues that I want to uh, discuss about secularization and um, modernity and the and the uh, rejection of religion in modern China. Um, so I'll focus here more on chapter two, which is a discussion of uh, the Wenzhou model. And this is a Chinese term, uh, Wenzhou Moshi, um, which describes the Wenzhou um, model of rural economic development. And this model is based on a small private family-owned uh, factories and businesses. And uh, this area is known for its entrepreneurial culture, its rapid uh, rural economic development, industrialization, and commerce. And uh, window people are generally seen as prosperous, highly geographically mobile, and um, even transnationally mobile. However, the term window model um, it doesn't, for me, uh, describe sufficiently um, what uh, should be entailed in the Wenzhou model, because uh, generally it leaves out the religious and ritual components, which I have discovered is quite central to economic development here. So I um, set up the discussion uh, that Wenzhou model um, is too limited because it doesn't include religious activities, um, which motivate and channel economic behavior. Indeed, I see a second Song Dynasty commercial revolution in Wenzhou all over again, where religiosity is central. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it, it's definitely a resurgence. And Wenzhou seems to have played a very important role in, in history. Uh, 
um, you know, in the in the, the long history of China. So um, I absolutely agree with that. And I think in part two, right, entitled Religious Diversity and Syncretism and containing chapters three, four, and five, you do uh, put forth a rich ethnographic and historical account of different forms of religious and ritual life in, in contemporary Wenzhou. And as you mentioned, you know, popular religion, Taoism and Buddhism. And, and this is all uh, a quote from the book. So, um, you know, m- my question would be, what are these these accounts, right, in more in more detail? Um, okay. Yeah, sure. Um, well, chapter three um, is on popular religion. And um, so I describe uh, the components of what I consider popular religion. Um, so it includes deity worship, and there are so many deities, uh, so many that I encountered uh, for the first time. Um, and some of these deities are shared. Uh, uh, they are gods and goddesses. They're shared uh, between um, Wenzhou and other parts of China, uh, especially with Fujian and also with Taiwan. Um, another part, of uh, popular religion are uh, things like um, divination and fortune telling, uh, feng shui or uh, Chinese geomancy uh, for citing um, important spaces like um, uh, ancestral tombs um, and also homes that people live in um, and even shops and factories. People want to uh, consult a geomantic master to tell them which direction it should face uh, and uh, which spot is uh, the best. Um, It also includes shamanism, spirit mediumship, and ritual healing. Um, It also includes uh, death rituals and placating of ghosts. Here I also discuss the terminology for how to translate the notion of popular religion uh, into modern Chinese. And I even propose a Chinese term um, that integrates the late imperial term of local customs, feng su, with the term for folk, minjian, with the modern term for religion, zongjiao. And I come up with um, min su zongjiao as a, uh, my proposal for how to translate the category of popular religion into modern Chinese. Then uh, chapter four is a chapter on Taoism. And um, I talk about how in the West, uh, Taoism uh, really appeals to a kind of um, uh, uh, post-Reformation kind of uh, centering on the self and on self-cultivation. Um, So in the modern West, Taoism is understood mainly in terms of uh, self-cultivation. But uh, in Wenzhou and in other parts of China, but especially in Wenzhou, Taoism is mainly community rituals. So in modern West, uh, I think, doesn't understand that Taoism came about in the history of uh, Chinese Taoism is very much a ritual history. So the rituals of Taoism is a very rich and dynamic. And I was just mesmerized uh, in participating at so many Taoist rituals. Um, 
And uh, the other thing I do is, in this chapter is I interview many uh, Taoist monks to show the full range of different kinds of personalities who get involved uh, with Taoism, uh, 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 two kinds of sects of Taoism, one uh, that uh, uh, traces back to the beginnings of religious Taoism at the end of the Han Dynasty, which features uh, stay-at-home uh, clerics who can marry, have children, and have other businesses while they also attend to conducting community rituals. And another line of Taoism, which are um, monastic monks and nuns. So I interview um, these people to, to show uh, that there is quite a range of different kinds of people uh, who get uh, tracked into this uh, ritual activity. And then uh, chapter five is on the historical development of Buddhism in Wenzhou. Um, so uh, Buddhism arrived in China at the end of the Han Dynasty and in Wenzhou just a little later. Um, and there are many sects of Buddhism, but uh, the two dominant ones are the Pure Land sect, which is more popular Buddhism, and also Chan sect of Buddhism, which uh, uh, over time in Wenzhou has uh, really shares more with Pure Land than with Chan, uh, the more austere kind of meditative uh, Buddhism. And that aspect of Chan Buddhism has been in decline, uh, been pretty much taken over by popular Buddhism and Pure Land Buddhism but is making a comeback now in this millennium. So in the 1980s to 90s, uh, Buddhism was mainly folk Buddhism in Wenzhou. It's about um, doing prayers and offerings made to Buddhas in exchange for favors uh, and help in their family affairs. And uh, so the new uh, line of development, new uh, recent development just in the past, two decades, or really in the past one decade, is a new attention to examining doctrinal matters in Buddhist scriptures as people become better educated, and to self-cultivational Buddhism, the meditational aspect of Chan, uh, with a turn to interiority and the self. So with increasing educational levels, this latest uh, phase of Buddhist development is perhaps not so surprising. And I think also um, in terms of Taoism, um, probably in the last 20 years, um, possibly in Wenzhou, but in other in other cities in China too, there is this return to interrogating right, the doctrines and you know, trying to, to um, perceive more and study more uh, as the rituals take place. So um, it, it might be... Um, you know, uh, a larger type of trend. Yeah, although in Wenzhou, I don't see that happening so much for Taoism because the people who are leading Taoism are not as educated, um, it seems. Um, I think Taoism, the doc doctrines of uh, Taoism and the self-cultivational aspects of Taoism 
is more in the academy across China. There is this interest, but in terms of a local practice, it's not quite there yet. Yeah, but could be developing here. Yeah, because the leadership in in Wenzhou is、um, generally not college educated. I see. I see. Okay, so then we see uh, uh, this difference playing into.、Um, Into the rituals and the ritual,、um, ritualistic economy, right? And I think that yeah, but ritual life is very rich, <laughs> very, very, very abundant. Good,、yes. good, good. And yeah, and I think that is、uh, it's a very、um, you know good segue into part three entitled "Religious Civil Society and Ritual Economy,"、uh, where you ask and answer questions related to the resurgence of ritualism and really religiosity in post Mao China. The management of religious associations and temples, and the necessary broadening of this term that、uh, we started with, civil society, to accommodate realities in Wenzhou, and these are just a few of the themes、um, in from in chapter six to ten.、Um, and again, as I as I did for for part two, I would like to invite you to tell us more about each of these chapters and the extraordinary inte- intellectual, physical, and emotional work that went into them. Okay,、um, so chapter six it provides ethnographic details on、uh, five or six temples and how they collected donations, how they organized to petition local authorities for the right to exist, how they managed、uh, daily and special ritual activities, and also、uh, describes their、uh, method of selecting leadership. And this lays the、uh, groundwork for my argument. Um, in、uh, chapter nine,、um, which is a more theoretical uh, chapter, um, it lays my argument that these、uh, initiatives represent the growth of a grassroots religious civil society.、Um, chapter seven is about the rebirth of lineage organization in、um, post Mao Wenzhou. Uh, what's interesting here is that the first activities of、uh, different lineages in the,、uh, to revive themselves、um, in this area were not economic, even though、uh, in late imperial and republican times,、uh, lineages owned their own land and they collected rents、uh, that fed into their ritual activities. So.、Um, These lineages in Wenzhou generally got started through rituals. First, they collected funds for redoing their uh, elaborate ritual, um, elaborate uh, genealogies, tracing kinship descent lines back thirty to fifty generations.、Um, so they rewrote their genealogies that were burned、uh, during the Cultural Revolution. Um, they started out reviving sacrifices to the ancestors and、um, organizing collective outings to their ancestral tombs in the mountains on the Qingming Festival, the festival of tomb sweeping,、uh, generally、um, in the springtime. So basically, lineages are charitable organizations. They help、uh, care for widows and orphans. Uh, and they organize、uh, ritual activities, and they give money to poor families、uh, to support their children's education at all levels. 
And nowadays, girls benefit from this too. However, what's also interesting is that lineages are still not granted official recognition or legal title uh, to exist by the state. So they have to hide under many guises, such as uh, they can present themselves as a local history association uh, or as a cultural activity center or as a museum or as a committee for the repair of a historical monument, i.e. their old ancestor hall, which has a historical value. Then um, uh, in chapter eight, uh, this is about uh, women's ritual agency in a culture where women remain socially conservative in Wenzhou. Um, so here I suggest that whereas the institution of kinship and lineage are patriarchal, uh, since descent is traced patrilineally and favors the birth of sons, Women, though, can find an outlet for their creative and leadership energies through exercising religious agency. So I chronicle different forms of uh, female religious agency, uh, which uh, was surprisingly abundant, I found. So I chronicle religious sisterhoods in which uh, women um, get together as sisters um, and uh, the sisterhood uh, follows them throughout their lifetimes. They travel periodically to temples to worship together, um, often at uh, female um, deities' uh, temples. So the uh, most important uh, two goddesses in this area are uh, Chen Jinggu, who's a, a very important goddess that emerged in uh, Fujian. And many people in Wenzhou are, uh, through centuries ago, uh, migrants from Fujian. So Chen Jinggu in this area is called Chen Shi Si Niang Niang, so Goddess Chen the 14th. And uh, she's actually very interesting. She's a kind of uh, what one could call, quote-unquote, feminist goddess. Uh, she's a martial goddess. She leads uh, spirit armies. She has two generals underneath her. And she's a fighting uh, woman. She's a fighting goddess. She uh, flies around the countryside um, helping people in need. Uh, and she uh, kills uh, demons. And her two um, biggest uh, enemies are the uh, white and green snake demon. And so in many rituals, she uh, dispatches the snake demon. And many uh, storytelling traditions in uh, Wenzhou and also in Fujian uh, is about how she uh, fights the snake demon. And she also refuses marriage initially, which is something that Chinese goddesses do. And she also... Um, um, undertakes to take control of her own reproduction. So she, uh, in order to help a community deal with drought, she knows that uh, she's pregnant and she needs to do the rain dance, which is very exhausting and might kill the fetus. So she slices open her abdomen and pulls out the fetus and uh, does a magical spell and um, to protect the fetus, and she'll get back to the fetus later. Wow. 
she does the ring dance and she saves the people. Uh, but the evil snake demon eats up her fetus. <laughs> anyway, um, she has her main ancestral temple in um, Gutian in uh, Fujian province, where she, supposedly the giant statue of her has her inside. Her corpse is kind of buried inside the statue um, and immortalized in that way. So um, I also, you know, in this chapter, basically I'm also uh, introducing several women who took the initiative to build a um, temple uh, to usually to her, Chen Jinggu. Um, and this involved them going out from the domestic area um, and domestic realm out into the public to gather um, donations, to petition local authorities, to get, get permission to build the temple and so forth. So surprisingly, quite a lot of these. So these temples start out small, but once they become big and lucrative, then the men move in. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is an uh, old, you know, old story, I think. <laughs> and... Um, so this is uh, taking up the issue of how can we understand these women uh, at the same time not impose too many Western um, liberal feminist um, language and agenda because these women are socially conservative. Uh, so how to deal with their religious uh, agency as well as uh, leadership um, in terms that they could understand and accept. And so here I have a, a kind of engagement uh, with, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Saba Mahmood, yeah. uh, who recently uh, uh, passed away, uh, anthropologist at UC Berkeley. Um, okay, so then... Um, the chapter nine, I'm addressing whether the Western Enlightenment theories of civil society are relevant or applicable to China, which has a very different history and culture. Um, so I basically answer this question by saying that I'm only applying this term and notion of civil society to modern China especially to post-Mao society after the rapid expansion of the state in modern China. So I suggest that civil society um, has become a global category uh, because everywhere in modernity we have seen the expansion of the state. And uh, so civil society should be able to join other terms that emerged in the West, such as class um, and uh, nationalism and uh, even um, governmentality has been used or uh, has become used around the world. So there are these terms, but what I seek to do is to um, localize the term civil society in terms of um, China's own past history. Um, so if you look at late imperial China, 
there was significant uh, self-governance at the local level, uh, where the state, oh, I use the term um, hierarchical encompassment. The, the state, you had the centralized state, but the state was really in the capital and um, its uh, officials who passed the imperial examinations uh, were few uh, and they were uh, sent down only to the county level. And below the county level, it was basically de facto self-governance, of course, dominated by the Confucian-educated gentry. Um, so finally, I come to the crux, uh, and hopefully you will um, include this part when you edit. Uh, so the last chapter, chapter 10, is about the ritual economy. Uh, basically, uh, I talk about ritual e economy and, um, you know, use it to um, say that the window model is too limited. So what is um, important uh, about this area is that, uh, you know, we have the notion, Max Weber's notion of the Protestant ethic, and that has been applied in so many areas. And then there's a, a push by some scholars to say that uh, China's uh, economic uh, success in the post-Mao era is due to something called the, um, the Confucian ethic, which is China's version of the Protestant ethic. So I challenge that by saying that there's something much more interesting going on uh, and we don't need any notions of the Protestant ethic or the Confucian ethic. In fact, I propose to um, recognize ritual economy as something very important about Wenzhou and other places in China that are like Wenzhou. And the notion of the ritual economy directly is uh, oppositional to the notion of Protestant ethic. So here's how I define ritual economy. It's the expenditures of wealth that do not directly lead to profit accumulation. Um, they are uh, engaged, uh, these activities of ritual economy are engaged in non-productive uh, activities. Okay, so that already suggests that it's not Protestant ethic. So while Wenzhou is very successful economically, uh, it is also uh, giving play to non-productive activities and uh, which do not lead to profit accumulation. Indeed, the ritual economy eats up one's profits and savings for non-utilitarian ends. So ritual economy includes investments and expenditures for rituals, for gifts and gifts giving, for charitable and temple donations, for festivals, and for building religious structures and engaging in ritual, uh, religious activities. It involves human transactions and economic exchange with the divine world of ancestors, gods, nature spirits, and ghosts. And the ritual economy diverts a segment of wealth from this world and transfers it 
to divine transcendent realms of the gods. Uh, and so sacrifice is an investment in the afterlife. So it's an investment in um, the afterlife, in divine realms, um, and a divestment, actually, from capitalism. So unlike the profit economy of the market, which stresses, uh, stresses profit and accumulation of wealth, the ritual economy expresses a logic of generosity, sacrifice, and giving out of wealth. Um, parting from one's material wealth and donating labor for higher transcendent ends. And, and this um, um, also strengthens the social networks, right? The... That's right, yes. It builds up a community a self-governance. It builds up community identity through uh, doing rituals to icons of uh, what Durkheim called totems of uh, social solidarity. Um, and, and I do have a quibble with um, Durkheim because um, I think he always uses the term society in the singular. And to me, that really translates to nation state. Okay, because that was also what was going on during Durkheim's time, um, building up of the nation and national identity. And so it's uh, ironic, I point out, that Durkheim was using uh, totem totemism from Australian Aborigines. Australian Aborigines are an acephalous uh, you know, body of um, different uh, societies. And the continent of Australia never saw the emergence of the state until uh, Western Europeans arrived. So for Australian Aborigines, totems and clans should always be in the plural. Okay? So just like all these different um, uh, cults, religious cults uh, of gods and goddesses and religious uh, temples are always in the plural. They help uh, strengthen those uh, horizontal communal ties. Absolutely. And um, I think there is a lot to say uh, right about these communities in plural and uh, societies and the roles gender plays in, in these relationships and, and so on and so forth. But I think we've taken a lot of your time today, so um, I was wondering whether you could tell us more about your current project now that this book is out. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'm working on uh, a new book. Uh, it's The t working title is uh, Religious Environmentalism in the Anthropocene, Potentialities and Actualities in China and the U.S., yeah, so I'm bringing the U.S. into it uh, somewhat. Uh, so I'm I'm going to deal with um, Protestantism in the United States, um, and um, I'm also using um, ethnographic material that I gathered about uh, popular religion, Taoism, and Buddhism in Wenzhou, um, because, uh, you know, Buddhism has vegetarianism, it all, and then um, this new uh, field of uh, anthropology of ontology, 
so the, or the ontological turn figures uh, somewhat in my discussion because um, certainly um, if you look at so ways of uh, uh, defining and being human uh, in relation to non-human things, okay? And non-human things for me includes gods and goddesses as well as animals. So I'll be talking about um, human and non-human relations. And the fact that Buddhism and, um, you know, contemporary Buddhists in uh, Wenzhou, uh, they firmly um, are into this idea of reincarnation. Uh, once you die as a human, uh, you could be reincarnated into six different paths, um, such as animals or God. You can become a God. You can become an animal. You can become an Asura uh, or a more kind of belligerent kind of God. Uh, you can also become um, a hungry ghost, uh, forever condemned to being hungry. Um, so these uh, also feed into discussions for the ontological turn, um, and which has bearing on um, how uh, we can be more environmental and deal with this uh, new uh, threat that's common to the human species, and that is climate change. Uh, and entering into the era of the... That is fascinating. And I'm really looking forward to reading that book too. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much much. for talking to us today. And I look really forward to to reading your fascinating work further. And um, I'm I'm just, you know, looking forward to to what is coming. Um, And, you know, one last word is thank you for today. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye.